Good evening. Welcome to the most recent installment of Building the Scottish State. So first of all, I have with Craig Murray, who has uh, certainly been in the news recently, and we'd like to get his perspective on it. So first of all, Craig, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Oh, thank you very much for, for asking okay. me. So just tell us about the case. As soon as I woke up a couple, a few days ago, I saw your, your testimony in Wings Over Scotland. I read it thoroughly. I, just, I saw what Alex Salmon had given to the, the parliamentary committee, the Fabiani committee, uh, his sworn testimony. So just tell us about the experience and whatever you can say. Well, I think I'd start by saying that the whole thing has been no fun. And it's been no fun for a couple of years. It, a couple of years ago, I started to suspect that Nicola Sturgeon had been behind efforts to get Alex Salmon convicted of sexual offences. That was a strange thing to suspect because you know, it made as little sense to me at that time as it would make to anybody else because they had apparently been very close, the closest of political allies. So it, it seemed, but reading very carefully through all the judicial review information it seemed to me that what the civil service had been up to in the, this unfair and illegal process as the court of session ruled it couldn't have gotten just from my knowledge of how the civil service works mm -hmm. uh, and of senior levels of the civil service it could not have happened without the knowledge and approval of Nicholas Sturgeon, it just couldn't. I know how the civil service operates and these people could not have been operating without her knowledge and approval. And then um, after I published something along those lines, I then had this meeting with, with Alex, which I, I referred to in my court evidence in February of 2018, where he told me straight out that Nicholas Sturgeon was at the center of a plot for people to make false allegations against him to get him out of politics and very, very quickly why do you think he reached out to you i think well i mean he reached out to me on the day i published my article in which i said from my experience as a civil servant and from all this that happened it's impossible it could have happened without nicholas surgeon's knowledge and consent mm -hmm. he read that and he called me to meet me to say basically yes you are right you've you've got it Mm -hmm. And then to fill me in on more detail. But, and, and I was absolutely shattered. It's one thing to work it out, you know, well, it's post comfort, but to have Alex Salmond himself actually tell you face to face that is what happened is, is still a very difficult experience. And, um, and what was even more difficult was he told me I couldn't tell anyone. I, I said to him, do you want me to publish this? He said, no, I want you to know and understand what's going on, but don't publish anything now. Mm -hmm. So I then had that knowledge and had to do nothing with it for over a year. Mm -hmm. And while I did nothing by way of publishing, I did more investigation. And I spoke to several senior sources within the SNP, people I obviously, you know, from the 2014 campaign in particular, but from campaigning for independence ever since and from being, I, I, I know a lot of people in the SNP. Party conferences that we both attended as well. So, oh, yeah. well, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And 
this. And I've spoken on platforms with a lot of people one way or another, because I've spoken on independents all around the country. And very often the local MP or MSP is also on the platform. You get to know people. And, you know, in the good old days, you got to have a drink with them or dinner or whatever. It was nowadays, you can't do any of this. But just people were, were giving me information. And the, the overall picture was just horrible. And I couldn't publish it. I couldn't say. And then, but of course, it colored my picture of Nicola Sturgeon. And I was already very, very concerned that the leadership of the SNP wasn't moving forward on independence at all. Mm -hmm. But they were far more concerned with trying to stop Brexit for the whole of the United Kingdom mm -hmm. than they were with Scotland getting independent and stopping Brexit for just Scotland. You know, they, they spent two years, really, on an anti-Brexit campaign in London, working alongside Alastair Campbell and Peter Mandelson and people, who we should never have anything to do with under any circumstances, mm -hmm. instead of being here, doing something about getting a referendum, using the mandate and campaigning for independence. So I was having all those doubts anyway. And on top of that, what I knew from Alex Salmon, but that latter bit I couldn't publish, I became naturally rather hostile to the SNP leadership. Because of that hostility to the SNP leadership, I found fellow independent supporters reacting and becoming very, very hostile to me and was called all kinds of names. And it was very unpleasant, even being accused of being a unionist spy and MI5 spy and all that kind of thing. So, so really, it's been a horrible time. I mean, it really has been a, a horrible time. And then <laughs> to be charged myself with contempt of court because of what I, I did publish, when, once a trial happened, of course, although I didn't publish all I knew about Nicola Sturgeon's hand in it, I did publish the truth about what was revealed at the trial. Mm -hmm. And at the trial, it was very, very plain that you know, people were lying. It's, it's not simply that it couldn't be proved beyond reasonable doubt. And it certainly wasn't he said, she said. For the majority of the accusations, they were, they were independent third-party witnesses, I think nine out of 11 of them female, who directly contradicted the evidence of the accusers. They said, no, that didn't happen. And in one famous case, of course, but the woman making the allegation wasn't even there on the evening in question. Now, there's nothing stopping me reporting all that. What I couldn't say was what I knew about Nicola Sturgeon having been involved in getting these people to make the false allegations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but the fact that they were false allegations, there's nothing stopping me reporting all that. And as a result of that, of course, I found myself charged with contempt of court, mm -hmm. um, which, again, is very unpleasant, particularly as up to two years in prison. I mean, that's no, that's no joke. And is, is there a verdict coming? Or what's... I, I'm waiting. The, it, it's a very strange thing because... Up to two years in jail, but you don't get a jury, you just see judges. And it's although you can go to prison for two years and face an unlimited fine, which could literally be, you know, 10 million pounds, although you don't get a jury, and it's not actually a criminal offence, strangely, although it has criminal penalties. Explain to us a little bit more about, because apparently it was kind of this retroactive policy that they cooked up. And as Salmon's uh, testimony was saying, it was imposed on him even when he was out of government. He wasn't even a, and what is it? You can't talk about it. If you, if you, you can't even begin to reveal any of the identities of the witnesses, even in this jigsaw thing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the specific policy? From what I gathered, it seems kind of, it just seems kind of cooked up for the occasion. Scotland is now 
the only country in the world which has a policy for handling complaints against ex-ministers after they've, they've left, an employment policy. Mm-hmm. And it's just the same as no employer has a policy for disciplining former employees who have left a company after they've left the company. There is no such thing. And in fact, there would be all kinds of legal difficulties in instituting such a, a policy. Scotland has become the only country in the world which has a policy for employment. Of course, if they're criminal allegations, they should be investigated against anyone. But we're, we're talking here of employment law and an employment policy for investigating former ministers for staff complaints. And um, the policy, it was decided to go ahead with the policy one day, the morning after Nicola Sturgeon's private secretary, John Summers, had a meeting with one of the people who made complaints. He met her twice on, I think, the 20th and 21st of November. And on the 22nd of November, Nicola Sturgeon's office gave instruction to Leslie Evans, the permanent secretary's office, that they should go ahead with making this change. The official claim is those two events are unrelated. And the fact that the day before Nicola Sturgeon's office instructed that this policy should be brought in, her private secretary had a meeting with one of the women who had made a complaint under this policy that was to be to come in. They claim it's a total coincidence. Um, they claim a lot more things are total coincidence, but, but they're, they're frankly nonsense. But yes, the policy, and the other important thing to say is that London, Whitehall, advised the Scottish government against making this. I I read that. I read that. Uh, And that's because what people want to believe, for independent supporters, this is all absolutely horrible. And they want to believe it's it's not Nicola Sturgeon, it's not the Scottish government. This is Whitehall somehow behind the scenes. Not true at all. Sad. I mean, I wish that were true, but it's not. Uh, Whitehall advised them not to do it. Whitehall said a retrospective policy for complaints against ex-ministers, that's that's nuts. <laughs> and, and the other interesting thing is the policy for ministers was revised at the same time for current ministers. And for the policy for current ministers, it's the first minister who makes the decisions. Only in the case of ex-ministers is the first minister taken out of the process. In every other disciplinary proceeding, the first minister is in the process. She's specifically, or the first minister, is specifically taken out of the protest only for ex-ministers. Now, why would that be? That seems very, very peculiar. And the answer is, of course, that it was done so that she could deny having anything at all to do with this whole process. She could say, no, no, the policy says I'm not in it. I'm in every other disciplinary procedure, but this one specifically I'm not in. Therefore, it was nothing to do with me, even though it was instituted the day after my own principal private secretary met one of the um, the complainers. And then it goes on. I mean, after that, the um, the people making the complaints were, two, two people originally, were cultivated, would be the word for it. Um, for, for the next two months before the policy was actually adopted, these people were being cultivated and their, if you like, their view of what their complaint was and how much they had to complain about was, was cultivated and they were brought along, they were kept on board, as some of the documents say. They were supported uh, as, and 
then eventually this policy came into being. And it's only ever been used against Alex Salmond. And one thing the committee were quite hot on finding was that despite it being flawed and illegal, according to the court of session, it's never been changed. Of course, the reason it's never been changed, there's no, there's no intention ever to use it again. It, it was designed to get Alex Salmon. That was the entire purpose of the, of the policy in the first place. And what do you think the motivation for it was? Reading your testimony, reading Salmon's testimony. I mean, Salmon got a job with uh, Johnston Press. It's like they just considered him this, like this huge threat of coming back to uh, frontline politics. And so they, they almost succeeded in uh, jailing him for life just so that he wouldn't be a uh, a threat to their political careers. I, I, you know, again, it's it just absolutely baffling. It, how, how, do you, how do you read it? It is baffling. I think it's difficult to try to understand it by the standards of, of you and me, because you, know, you and I, and hopefully our listeners, are not people who want to wield large amounts of power, want to fight our way to the top of politics. Mm-hmm. People who want to be in power and want to hold power over a lot of people have a different psychology to, to most of us. In fact, most politicians, there are many, many studies that show it, you know, m- most senior politicians do have sociopathic and even psychopathic traits. And in business too, of course, you know, in the, in the, yeah. in the yeah. upper echelons of business. Most, well. most senior executives as well. And so it may seem daft to us to consider Alex as such a potential threat to your position. You want to kill him off to make sure it doesn't come back. But that's, that's not the way a powerful politician thinks. And look at John Swinney. You know, John Swinney took over from Alex. Alex retired as leader. John Swinney took over from him. Uh, wasn't doing particularly well. And, um, and Alex came back and Swinney was, um, was finished. His leadership chance was, was gone. That was the sort of the turn of the century. Okay. I can't call exactly, to be honest. I think I was probably in Uzbekistan at the time. <laughs> so there, I think the fear was there that maybe Alex would want to come back and resume the leadership. Alex had made plain to Nicola that he thought that with Brexit happening, she should be doing more about pushing for independence. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, she wasn't doing enough on independence. Um, so that that was in the background. And then you've then got added into the mix the fact that what Nicola really, really cares about more than she cares about independence is identity politics. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been saying this to people for about three years and people kept saying to me, no, no, it's not true. I think with what we've seen with her in the last week, what we've seen of this whole mad stushy about transphobia uh, and her, her video attacking transphobes, and with the sacking of, of Joanna mm-hmm. Cherry, I think people are coming to see this, you know, and, and with the the SNP then reserving the main places on the list for uh, various minorities, in addition to the all-women shortlists we already have in many places in that country, this whole gender politics identity is what Nicola's about in politics. She's much more, and if you look at the um, the reading lists, she's often t- telling us it's all about feminism. Uh, you know, now I have nothing against feminism. I, I, I support it in general, but it's her raison d'etre. So when the Me Too movement came along, this idea of you know attacking 
the patriarchy by felling the big male beast of Scottish politics as a great triumph for women's liberation or, or, or however you want to look at it. Uh, and the idea that you know, Alex Salmon could be like Harvey Weinstein, if you like, could mm -hmm. embody the evils of all the nasty men who have ever portrayed, abused their power to portray on women. The, the idea of making Alex into not, not a human being, but a totem for, for male violence. I think all that psychology is, is mixed, mixed in there. And of course, it's totally unfair because although undoubtedly it's true that women have over, well, throughout human history really, suffered male violence and suffered male sexual violence, and although undoubtedly it's true that power structures have favoured men over women, so men are able to get the power, and then some men abuse that power in order to perpetrate sexual violence against women. All of that is true. But it's not necessarily true of Alex Salmond as an individual. Mm -hmm. uh, and the evidence in court was that it's not true of Alex Salmond as an individual. But if you look at social media, and the social media of Nicola's most fervent supporters in the last week or two, and Twitter in particular has been red hot on, on these issues. You know, the horrible things said about Alex Salmond, that he's a rapist, that he's a sex pest, that he's an abuser, all the things that proven not to be true in court, but there's still that massive vitriol against him mm -hmm. um, coming out all the time on social media. And one of the things I've actually found most amusing is it that the last line of defense, if you like, of Nicola's hardline supporters is to say, well, she had no motive for doing this. And if you look down the timeline of the people who say she had no motive to act against Alex Salmond, mm -hmm. those same timelines are full of the expressions of hate against Alex Salmond. He's saying, we hate him, we hate him, he's a patriarchy, he's vicious, he's a rapist, he's a sex pest, he's awful. But we have no motive for doing anything against him. Uh, you know, it makes no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. no sense. It, 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 it's really quite peculiar. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, that was a long and passionate explanation, but these, these things have been worrying me for a while. And I think this need to find, the need to personalise the institutionalised abuse of women, which has gone on, Mm -hmm. But then to focus that personalization on someone who then becomes a hate figure. And really, it was the idea that it does, almost doesn't matter whether it's true or not in the individual case mm -hmm. is what's behind an awful lot of this, in my opinion. And in Alex, they, they just um, landed on someone who, who hadn't done anything very bad in, in, in his life. But it, it's all wrapped up in this heated identity politics. And, and you must remember that um, some people, including the people at Rape Crisis Scotland, uh, who've been putting out stuff against Alex, these people don't believe there should be jury trials in cases of sexual allegation. They don't believe you should have jury trials. They, they actually believe it is wrong, full stop, to question a woman who claims she's been raped. You, you have to just accept that's true and the man should not be allowed any defense. Mm -hmm. These people actually genuinely believe that uh, and they believe that's the only way to redress centuries of wrongdoing by instituting, if you like, 
centuries of a different kind of wrongdoing. But the, um, you have to understand where these people are coming from to, to, to get to, to understand an awful lot of what's going on here. What did you learn about kind of the nexus between the press, the, the, the Crown Office, the Scottish government, uh, kind of the functioning of it, and how in an independent Scotland can we make, maybe make the separation of powers better so that kind of thing can't happen? Uh, no, I think um, it's very worrying, very worrying indeed. The, um, the closeness of the Crown Office to the Scottish government. And it's not really a question of the institutional arrangements. I mean, yes, it's obviously wrong constitutionally that the Lord Advocate is both a member of the cabinet and the head of the Crown Office who decides all prosecutions. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that plainly is bad. But if you had people of integrity in office, it wouldn't really matter. To be honest, it's the lack of personal integrity, which is a bigger problem than the constitutional arrangements. And, and one thing very, very plain to me was that there was very improper collusion going on between the Sturgeon government, Sturgeon's inner circle, and the Crown Office and Police Scotland over the charges against Alex Salmon. Mm -hmm. And my own view is that you know the decision to charge Mark Hurst for saying that the accused that those who conspired against Alex Salmon would reap the whirlwind, uh, and the you know to charge him with threatening communication for saying reap the whirlwind. Well, that's plainly political language. I mean, it's not a threat of violence, um, and, and that was thrown out as no case to answer. But that decision to make that prosecution was political, just as the decision to charge me with jigsaw prosecution was political when demonstrably I didn't give any more identification information than the mainstream media did. And none of those have been charged. You know, we, we have an intensely political Crown Office, which has admitted to malicious prosecution in, in the Rangers case. So far, they've had to pay £20 million in damages, but the, the cases aren't finished yet. And that will definitely go over £50 million in damages before the fallout from that has ended. Crown Office, that's, is that more a UK institution or...? No, it's, a, it's very much a Scottish institution. I mean, it represents the Crown, but of course the Crown is the Crown of, of both countries. It's a prosecution service. It's headed by the Lord Advocate, so it's not really independent of government, but it, it operates entirely within Scottish law. And one of the, one of the few things which, even before devolution, you know, within the Union, one of the few residual pockets of Scottish autonomy was the legal system. So mm. you can't really say that the Crown Office is UK influenced or, or, or UK appointed. And, and the appointees in it are all, all appointed by the Scottish government. There's no one in there who is appointed by the UK mm. government. Although the, um, the Crown agent, uh, Mr. Harvey, happens to be a former employee of, of MI5. He used to work full-time for um, MI5. And later he worked for the Foreign Office while I was in the Foreign Office. Mm -hmm. He was also a lawyer at the, at the Lockerbie trial, where he's been described to me as other lawyers in the Lockerbie, by, uh, by another lawyer in the Lockerbie trial, that he, he sat around taking notes of what everyone was saying a great deal, but didn't seem particularly to have anything to contribute. So my, my suspicion is he was MI5's man in the Lockerbie trial. But you know, the fact you've got at the head of the Crown Office taking the day-to-day -day operational decisions an MI5 man is, <laughs> is worrying, but he was appointed by the Scottish government. He wasn't appointed by the UK government.
Anything else you'd like to say about the case before we move on to slightly more positive subjects? <laughs> well, just it's horrible. You know, this this thing of having to 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 wait around for a verdict for for days. You know, it's very unpleasant for me at the moment. I, I, I'm really not not enjoying it. I, I say the the entire experience has been extremely not enjoyable, and the uh, and the idea that I'm being prosecuted for writing really identical things that other people wrote. And in some cases, I'm being prosecuted for republishing something that Annie Garavelli wrote that she's not being prosecuted for. I saw that you took her article and you kind of like annotated yeah. it. And, yeah. and, and, that's, and that's part of it? One of the identifying things I'm accused of publishing is simply a quote from Danny Garavelli, yeah. But the, um, to me, it is the most obvious case of selective prosecution where, where they've decided to go for me because of who I am politically mm. uh, and they haven't gone for the rest of the media. We had an opinion poll showing that I, that most people who got an identity got it from the mainstream media. I read, you you commissioned a poll to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, taken by that. panel base, uh, done absolutely according to their, their professional guidelines. Um, and that shows it's not me who's been identifying people, but the, the, the court uh, decided that wasn't relevant as evidence or could only be taken in mitigation and if I'm guilty then I can I can say in mitigation that other people did it too but I'm not allowed to say the mainstream media did it more than me therefore this is a political persecution that's not an, an admissible argument in court anyway something more fun <laughs> <laughs> so go Scotland tell us about it now, now Scotland um sorry now yep yeah. yeah. now Scotland is an attempt to lift the campaign towards independence because I do believe independence is coming. I, I believe independence is unstoppable. Mm -hmm. I think it'll come in the next year or two. And I think exactly how it will come may be slightly unexpected. It, it may, may not come through any of the you know, combinations of elections and referenda people are expecting. The UK may fall apart rather quickly and more messily than that. But however <laughs> it comes, we have to be ready and whatever campaign we fight, we have to be ready. Now Scotland is, is an attempt to get a, what we lack at the moment. There's no group you can join that you can become a member of, which encompasses the entire yes movement and which is not a political party. So it's not in opposition to any other political party. It's not going to stand candidates for election. Members of any party or no party can join mm -hmm. and its purpose is independence. It has no other policies. It doesn't care what your views are on NATO or what your views are on the EU or what your views are on trans people or, 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 or whatever your views are, irrelevant. We are just campaigning for independence. And it's an effort to unite everyone who genuinely believes in independence and wants to get early independence and start campaigning for that goal. It's grown out of assemblies which were organized by AUOB. And of course, AUOB has been the big mass grassroots independence movement. And if you like, it's wanting to take similar work beyond just marching. So, you know, don't just march. You can do social media, you can leaflet, you can organize meetings, you, you can do, you can canvas, you can do all the different campaign activities, social media available. Um, and of course, it's gearing up possibly for another referendum campaign. Yes, Scotland had that kind of overall role 
at the last referendum campaign, but yes, Scotland had its weaknesses. Um, it had no democratic structure. It had no real grassroots base. And of course, it, it started with no members and it, no it money. Felt, it, it felt like more of a PR campaign for me, you know, with uh, Blair uh, Jenkins as the leader. And he is, he is the leader of that, wasn't able to really take it to the more basic levels of why independence was needed. It was, again, it, it felt like a, it felt like more like a PR campaign in my view. It, it was like a PR campaign and Blair, who I believe is a very nice person and who I'm not saying did a bad job, but what really shifted votes in 2014 was the street campaign, not the mainstream media. You know, the mainstream media was hopelessly biased. The television was- We made a movie about it. <laughs> we did make a movie about it. The newspapers were, were, were hopelessly biased. What changed people's minds and changed vote was the street campaign. The street campaign was enormous. And the town meetings and the demonstrations and the rallies and the discussions and, and, and the day I was on Buchanan Street in Glasgow and literally the majority of ordinary shop shoppers had, had yes badges on. And, and mm -hmm. I was just absolutely amazed. The street campaign was what did it. And, and what that's what we want to do. We want to take that energy of the street campaign and make the street campaign the campaign. Mm -hmm. And for it to be a membership-led movement, nothing at all top-down, that has a democratic structure and elects spokesmen but doesn't have leaders, and where we can we can get that going, and also where people do pay a um, a modest membership fee, so they're members, but also they're contributing into a pot, which is going to provide a war chest for these campaigning activities. Um, I'd, I'd also like to uh, speak about uh, my my own concerns. Is that as you say that, they, that there's not this overall campaign structure as there was there. Myself and other people who have uh, spoken directly to the Scottish government about the lack of um, any kind of interim constitution. Uh, before independence, we, uh, you know, I, I, I've shared these concerns with many of my colleagues, and there's there's real concern about it because if there is no kind of interim constitution or something, you know, basic guarantees of, of fundamental rights, basic things about the functioning of government, etc., then when there's a yes vote, it's like how do how do you form a government or you know how do you design it when you're out of the EU, out of the UK. And my concern is that, like in 1776, you know, you have this kind of this chaotic, uh, you know, Articles of Confederation system, the Continental Congress, in addition to all the social movements that were going on that demanded a lot, you know, a lot more popular participation in government. And then what the what the framers, Madison and Hamilton designed was very much a, a, an oligarchic system with this, with the Senate dominating and the president not really having much of marginal role, but the Senate was very much the landowning class that, that was represented. And it's become more democratic over time. You know, you have suffrage for blacks and suffrage for women. And, you know, in the 1930s with the New Deal, there was more policy that was geared towards helping normal people and more workers' rights, et cetera, better financial regulation. And then in the 60s, you had, of course, the, the Great Society and the Civil Rights Movement. But since Reagan, that's pretty much been washed away. And what I'm interested in doing, you know, and, and as I said, I'm going to be starting these uh, I'm going to be doing these uh, constitutional conventions, basically on at least a discussion on Saturday nights from seven to nine that will be live streamed. But how do we, from, I read a couple articles by George Caravan a few months ago, and he was concerned that Sturgeon and Mural were becoming kind of close to the Duke of Blue Clash and, you know, kind of the big, you know, oil interests and this type of thing. You know, I don't know to what degree that's true, but what I fear is that if, you know, if, if, if the independence was achieved, uh, in, in a certain way, and then 
the oligarchies come in and design the state to serve to, to serve their interests rather than creating a truly democratic government. So what are your thoughts on how do you see that? And is, is that I would say on the on, on the plus side, most countries have have managed and have come up with something decent and workable, even when they've become quite chaotically independent in the first place. So countries like Slovenia or Croatia or Estonia or what, whatever went through radical revolutionary transformation, but have managed to come out of it. Not 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 badly. So I'm not I'm not worried about about the future. I'm sure Scotland will develop something good. I think we, but I agree absolutely. But the groundwork needs to be done now. I think that um, the example I give is President Morsi of Egypt, mm-hmm. who became the only ever democratically elected leader of Egypt, and then tried to be full of reconciliation after he got elected. Mm-hmm. As a result, one thing which he didn't do was anything about purging Egypt's incredibly uh, fascist and corrupt judges, who then, of course, declared him illegal and, and, and jailed him, and he, uh, he, he died in prison. And <laughs> there's a real danger in making a change that doesn't actually change any of the institutions. So that, that's the Morsi lesson. And, you know, we live in a country which has, you know, you often see these claims made and it's hard to verify, but I think it is very probably true in Scotland. We have the most la- the most concentrated land ownership in, in the developed world, yes. where a very few people own all our land. And if that doesn't change in independence, then, you know, what's the point, almost to an extent? Yeah, you know, I, I agree. And that's, that's, that, that's the point I was t- trying to make is just like, if, if, if we do... If if one oligarchy is replaced by another, what's the yeah, point? I agree, and the you know the Charlotte Street Partners' approach to independence, where we just become another nice neoconservative nation where where nothing too radical is happening, is not the way I want to go. But on the other hand, how that relates to constitutional arrangements is a slightly more complex subject mm-hmm. because, of course, constitutional arrangements and, and social and economic policies are. Are different things, although one feeds into the the other. And you'll probably be surprised to hear, Mark, that I tend to be rather Burkean when it comes to constitutional mm-hmm. affairs. I'm suspicious of direct popular democracy. And if you ask me why, I'll say Brexit. <laughs> I think Brexit's a very good example of the dangers of unmodified popular democracy, that populism is a genuine danger. And trying to find, trying to eliminate the governmental structures by which the political class exert what some people would be undue, have what some people would say is undue levels of control, Mm-hmm. carries with it the danger of letting loose uh, populism of the Brexit kind, where by, and, and I know I have left-wing friends who support Brexit, and they always get very angry when I say this, but it is demonstrable fact that the large majority of Brexit voters, not everyone, but the large majority of Brexit voters were motivated far more by anti-immigrant sentiment than by anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ability to whip up racism in particular, when you have 
systems of government which rely too much on, on votes of the entire populace. Mm. Uh, and you see it in, you actually see it in Switzerland, where their famed plebiscitary system, people often point to Switzerland and say direct democracy works, look at Switzerland. Mm. Well, recently in Switzerland, been an awful lot of decisions saying people are not allowed to have mosques because Muslims are terrorists oh, and that kind of thing. And people will vote for those. If you give people, if you give ordinary people the choice to govern directly, certainly capital punishment would not have been abolished in the UK until decades after it actually was. I'm not sure when majority of opinion finally turned against capital punishment, but it was at least four decades after capital punishment was abolished. So the base motives of the crowd, as, as Burke would put it, uh, are, um, that's still a valid argument. And it still worries me. I actually don't like referenda. I, I would never have a, had any referenda on anything if it were, were up to me. I, I believe in representative democracy where the people elect people deemed, who the people deem knowledgeable, wise, and trustworthy in order to make laws for them. I, I think that's, that's much better than direct democracy. And as I say, you, I know a lot of my left-wing friends are horrified when they hear this, these ancient conservative arguments coming from them. But um, I, I find a lot of people on the left have a romantic view of, of people. Uh, which just isn't true. I, I would say to them, I used to live in Ramsgate, which of course is the place where Nigel Farage yeah, yeah. Uh, used to stand, but, and where UKIP got its biggest vote. And I said, you go down uh, the pub in Ramsgate and, and discuss immigrants with people for 10 minutes, and then you come back and tell me you have a, mo a noble view of the sentiments of the working class. Uh, <laughs> it's not not true. So, as I say, I, I'm, I do apologise. I, I'm I realize these are not fashionable things I'm saying at all, but that, that, is, that is my view. That, that, that's why I would be, be so interested if you could, you know, uh, take part in our conversation to try to get that balance right between, uh, because the way, the way I view it, it's like, you know, observing the United States, uh, you know, the, if, for example, that, the, that there, was a, there was a study done recently that's, that uh, showed basically that the U.S. is an oligarchy and whatever the popular sentiment is, is not reflected in, in, in policy, whether it's, you know, gun control, uh, healthcare, all that. So how do you not necessarily give this direct democracy, but you're able to at least make sure that the people that they do elect are, you know, I mean, uh, people worthy and that it will actually carry out the popular opinion. Whereas here, there's just such a huge disconnect uh, now. And I, I observe that in the in the UK as well, between what the people actually want and, 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 the, and the connection between that and its implementation in, in public policies. Well, people people have a choice of conservative parties to vote for, and that's the only choice you're allowed. And that, of course, was the change which Jeremy Corbyn brought about for a little while, yeah. where you did have an opportunity to vote for something that would actually be a bit different. Um, and that was just something which the, you know, the system would not allow. And so Jeremy Corbyn was demonised, called an anti-Semite, and, and hounded out of effective politics. Mm -hmm. So, um, And I used to say that that... No, that's in England, but here in Scotland, we've got the SNP and the SNP aren't like that. But sadly, you know, with the Grove Commission, with Charlotte Street Partners, with the Duke of Buccleuch's estate manager being Nicola's economic advisor, etc., it's no different in Scotland anymore either. You know, you have a choice of ec economically conservative parties. I do think that it's time for revolutionary change.
Okay, let, let me guide the conversation slightly on that theme, just because we've got a few minutes left. I, Kev Warden, we, we can't go over an hour. So uh, how do you how do you see that revolutionary change going forward? If there's no if you know as as you know there's no Section Thirty, and if they had no quote unquote wildcat referendum, that it would be chaotic, and you know they wouldn't be accepted. I mean, how do you see the how do you see the way forward? Well. Stop. I was talking about revolutionary change in society more widely and more widely than Scotland, because I, I think degrees of wealth inequality in society have now grown across all the Western democracies yes, to the extent that it's become unsupportable. Uh, we're entering a kind of HELOC society thing where people with very low wages and few rights and no job security work for an increasingly small number of amazingly rich billionaires. That's a social structure which is so unjust that it, it can't last and it will end, if, if society carries on this way, it, it, it will end in violence and bloodshed. In, in Scotland, I think the difficulty of being ruled by Tories who we don't want to rule us has passed the tipping point in terms of political acceptability. And the whether or not, and, and the idea that Nicola Sturgeon clung to so fervently but you can't do anything at all unless you get a section 30 from London. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to vanish. I don't know whether Martin Keatings will win. His, I think Martin Ke Keatings is a hero and has done a fantastic job. Whether he'll win or not, in terms of whether the quarter session will say Scotland does need an S30, I don't know. In a sense, it makes little difference legally, because if he does win, Westminster will just pass a law saying, saying otherwise, uh, and the UK Supreme Court has always upheld the doctrine of the sovereignty of parliament yeah. and it will it will do so it will say Westminster can do that so Westminster will pass a law saying Scotland may not hold a referendum if Martin wins mm -hmm. but that that in itself is a good result because that brings things to a political climax yeah. and my own view is it's never been a possibility that the UK will consent to Scotland becoming independent just not going to happen. We are worth far too much to them economically. Exactly. Oil, uh, whiskey, Faslane, yeah. Precisely. And, and in terms of the extent of UK prestige and power in the world as well. We're just worth far too much to them. And they're not going to let it was never going to happen in a quiet and agreed manner. That that was just some strange fantasy in Nicholas Sturgeon's head. You know, that, that that they're just not going to agree. Scottish independence is going to have to be a revolutionary act. Now, it doesn't mean a violent revolutionary act. It can be a non-violent revolutionary act. And we're going to end up with having to do it unilaterally without Westminster agreement. I, I've just got no doubt at all that's how it's going to come. My guess is it would probably be a declaration of independence by, Scottish, by the Scottish Parliament as public opinion becomes overwhelming in favour of, of, of Scottish independence. Uh, and I think that will happen in the next two to three years maximum. I'm, I'm all in favour of just holding our own referendum if we can, but my, my belief is that will be declared illegal and disrupted and, and there'll be attempts to stop it by London in the same way that the Catalan referendum was, uh, was stopped, or in other less violent ways by, you know, withdrawing the cooperation of local authorities that you need to get the ballot boxes done or that kind of thing. And, and then it's a matter of do you have the guts to do it yourself, saying, okay, we don't need the local authorities, we will do it another way. You know, we, we, we'll make a new structure, our own structure for conducting referenda. Um, and I think that kind of radicalism will come to be called for. Uh, and I think I agree. Yeah. comfortable leadership of the movement 
is too establishment minded, has got too, too has too, too long enjoyed the, the high the suits of being highly paid administrators of the devolution system, and that a far, far more radical approach is going to be needed in the next couple of years. Okay. All right. Um, we need to wrap it up, but just, just, is there anything you'd like to add about what we've said um, today or the case or, or, or kind of a final point on, on independence? Yeah, no, I think, um, I think I'd, I'd like to finish by saying, I do think independence is inevitable. And I do think we are going to be fully independent in, in the near future, in, in two to three years maximum. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen in the nice, simple, all agreed, drinking tea and scones and, and, and chatting in number 10 gardens. That's not how it's going to come about. It's going to have to come back as, as an active defiant, uh, which basically says either you attack the Scottish people or we're going to be independent. And if you do attack, we will defend ourselves. Okay. On that note, uh, thank you so much, uh, Craig, for being with us this evening, and um, I hope you'll be back soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.